Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So I was talking with uh, one of uh, the girls who goes to Grizzly Christian Fellowship, our campus ministry this week. It started back up uh, at the University of Montana, and she was reflecting on this theme we've seen throughout the book of Deuteronomy the last couple weeks, Um, and that theme is that of punishment and judgment. And actually, it's a theme that's going to come up again today. Twice in our passage, Moses is going to urge God's people to purge the evil person from among you. He's going to, he's going to uh, leverage this idea of capital punishment for specific sins. And this young lady was thinking in terms of her non-Christian friends and how we might share the gospel to them and how a non-Christian can think of God as good, right? We just sang the song, Good and Gracious King, But how can a good God punish people? Can God be good and still punish? And so I asked her, I said, well, do you think your friends would think that punishment is always a negative thing? And she said, probably what you would say when you think of your neighbors or your non-Christian coworkers. I think so. Most people in our culture don't want punishment. They want grace. But I asked her what her friends would say if their friends had a kid who was abducted, molested, and murdered. In instances like that, would our culture just be like, don't worry about it, it's all okay? No, we would demand when things that vile and that evil happen that punishment actually be executed. And that's because deep in our hearts, there is a line of justice. There is a line that says that wrongs should be punished and rights should be protected. And this week, just culturally, Our nation is fully aware of this line. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, as Paul prayed for, that we we understand that everyone was made in the image of God and has rights, including those who are outside the womb and those who are inside the womb. Tomorrow we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. and his demands for justice towards those who, by nature of their skin color, were refused rights that other people were afforded. And maybe consider even... MLK's forerunner, a former slave, a pastor, a poet, a black man named Frederick Douglass, who lived and and worked around 50 years prior to Martin Luther King. And he actually reflected upon the culture of racism inside of the Christian church. And look at what he said in the back half of the 1800s. He says this, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. 
The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of pulpits and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Central to Douglas's rhetoric is not only the evils of slavery, but also this reality that of all people, God's people should be a community of justice, not of injustice. And culturally, not only religiously, This fills our sails of justice. Our culture today is zealous for justice. It's a word you're going to hear in the presidential debates. It's a word that's going to be tweeted and blogged about. It is a word that carries nonprofits. It is a word that dominates our thought processes and our budgets. And yet, in the history of humanity, we have never seen a culture so outraged for justice that they get the justice they want. We have never seen a cause so committed to bring about the change we want to see. Which is why we're reminded of the goodness of God's word today. That this really has everything we need in life, even when life doesn't look like rose-colored glasses. Because what we see today is a message that our culture longs to hear. Listen to how Moses opens this passage in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to the tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Justice, and only justice. That's something our culture gets behind. Our world cares and cries for justice. Perhaps you are one who cares and cries for justice. But what Moses is going to show us in Deuteronomy 16, 17, and 18 is that God cares more about justice than you do. God is more concerned with justice than you are concerned with justice. And this means what we will see is that if you are one, or that if your culture is one that cares about justice, you have already started thinking theologically. To feel urges for justice is to feel theologically. It is to feel things which are directly related to the God of the Bible. And this is true whether you feel awkward and queasy when justice is talked about because it seems like our culture is watchdogging for injustices under every rock, or if you feel passionate about pleas for justice and the needs for those who are neglected. God wants you to consider justice 
as he considers justice. So what we're going to do today is we are going to look at three ways that the Bible causes us to think about justice, specifically in Deuteronomy. And we're going to see today are three points. We're going to see the definition of justice, the design of justice, and the demand of justice. And hopefully at the end, what we're going to see is we're actually going to see how we can engage in culture's dialogue, things that culture's already talking about, but we could do so with the wonderful news of the gospel. And it will shape not only the words that we say, but the view of Jesus we have and what we do with our lives. And so we are dealing with, as Paul mentioned, a larger portion of Scripture again today, and we'll deal with an even larger one next week. So chunk out like from 10 to 4 for the sermon next week. So um, bring a snack. It'll be great. It'll be good. Um, If you don't have a Bible, it will benefit you a lot to have one. If you don't have one, you can get up and go to the back. There's some on some tables there. Steal your neighbors. That's justice. Uh, Look on your phone. Do whatever you need to do, because we're going to be jumping around a little bit today. And what I want to do is read the passage we just read, and then an additional passage that Moses is going to get to in chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, let's look again, beginning in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice shall follow you, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Justice in their pursuit of it is part of the way they live in the land. To not pursue justice is to put yourself in danger of being put out of the land. So now skip forward to uh, chapter 17, verse 8, and this is where Moses continues in a similar theme. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you Then you shall arise and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision or the verdict. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place the Lord your God will choose. And you shall be careful to do all that they direct you according to the instructions they give you, according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously or in contempt by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fill and not act presumptuously again. So here we see this Seamless transition. Moses proclaims justice and only justice. It can't be blinded. It can't show partiality. And you need judges who judge righteously. And so now we see, beginning in chapter 17, verse 8, the prescription of these judges. God makes priests judges. And he says, when there is a case too difficult for you, one on who's guilty in a murder, who robbed who, who has legal rights to this or that, go to the place, go to the central place of worship, go to the priest, go to the judge, and they will give you a verdict. They will decide what is right. And then Moses goes on. He says, 
you need to obey what they tell you. If they tell you a man is innocent and the alleged victim takes offense and murders the innocent man, that victim is to be put to death. If you declare that man to be guilty and he flees or is abated in fleeing, those people are to be put to death. And this is pretty strong language that Moses is using here, but it's because it gets to the center of the first point today, which is the definition of justice. The definition of justice. The other day we had some friends over and uh, we heard curdling screams from the room where my two-year-old daughter and her friend were, only to see her friend come out of the room crying and Ellie coming out holding her head lowly. And uh, so Sarah goes over and we're trying to discern, we get the gist of probably what happened, but we're trying to get clarity on what it was and so Sarah goes, Ellie, did you, did you hit her? And Ellie goes, yes. But now we see like she's holding her face and so we say, Ellie, did you scratch her? Ellie goes, yes. And Sarah's like, did you bite her? Ellie goes, yes. <laughs> did you kick her? Ellie goes, yes. First of all, don't be interrogated by Sarah. That's the point of the story. <laughs> Ellie says, yes. And at this point, Sarah's noticing a trend. And so she throws out this, this test. Did you lick her? <laughs> and Ellie goes, yes. Now, there's a reason why Sarah and I did not enforce the same standards of justice upon Ellie that Moses is talking about here. Part of it is because Christ fulfills this, but the other part is because we really had no idea what happened. In our limitations, there is no way for us to know what was actually just at that point in time. But for God's people, when Moses is talking about this place that God will put his name, God is going to put his presence there. His real presence, which means when the priests are ministering before God and a case comes before them, that God's real presence, the real God, helps these priests discern what actually happens. Why can Moses allow decisions made by priestly judges in God's holy place to be so strictly enforced? Because God gets to define justice. The only reason that Moses just the only reason that what Moses described is not totalitarian foolishness is that God actually knows what is right and just, and he is able to act on it. You see, there's this presupposition that God made the world, that he has spoken and acted inside of our world, and that he is able to discern what is right and wrong and enforce that, which is a foundational truth. And this is so essential to us because every cry for justice has a foundation. There is something that defines the way you encounter what is right or wrong. For instance, ISIS released a document of questions and answers onto how they're to treat captives who are taken in their conquest. And according to this booklet, it is defined that Muslim men can sleep with any female captives and it will not be counted as wrong towards them. They are free, as it says, from blame. The pamphlet goes on to define that by all females, it means even females who are not of the age of puberty. This, according to Allah, is just. This is good. And it is not bad. But this isn't just a religious problem. 
It's not just that religion sometimes has bases that make our morality or our sense of justice cringe. This is, in fact, a universal problem. In fact, honest secular worldviews understand this dilemma as well, where the challenge isn't we have to base it on something, but the challenge is we don't have, it, we don't have anything to base morality on. In fact, more consistent atheists, ones who see that our life is nothing more but some combination and collision of atoms and space and time, they realize that we can't really find any sort of morality, any sense of why we're here, anything to discern or help us decide what is good and just. In fact, a Duke professor named Alex Rosenberg gave an address in 2020 called An Atheist's Guide to Reality, where he too offered a Q&A. And this is what he says. Question, what is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? Answer, there is no moral difference between them. Question, why should I be moral? Answer, because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Question, Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden permissible? Answer, anything goes. Can justice be defined? And who gets to define it? The truth is, individually and culturally, you are irreversibly shaped by your subconscious answer of both of those two questions. It forms the foundation of how you view right and wrong and our response to it. But here Moses makes explicit what God is calling us to assume, that God defines justice. And he gets to. Why? One of this, two reasons, one has to do with the nature of God and the other has to do with the nature of justice. Later in Deuteronomy, look at how Moses speaks of God using this uh, analogy of a rock in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. This rock, that's Yahweh, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is, in his nature, just, upright, without iniquity. Unlike us, where we have variations and dark spots in our life, God does not. He is wholly true. In fact, look at how God revealed himself to Moses, the same Moses, this Moses who is pleading with his people for justice back in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation. Why does God get to define justice? Because justice doesn't exist apart from God. Justice is part of God's nature, so the only reason justice exists is because God has revealed himself as being just. 
And that same God who is perfect, who is without error, who knows right from wrong, created us in his image, which means when we long for justice, we do so because we were made in the image of a God who is just. And therefore, they are whispers of God's created order when our two-year-old cries, this isn't fair. It's God's image demanding to be recognized in the world. The nature of God is that God is just. But there's a second reason. This has to do with the nature of justice. And we see that, that here in chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, Moses is really describing the interpersonal issues that justice brings. Someone murdered someone, someone abused someone, someone stole from someone. And that's because injustice hurts people. Justice is a social issue. But what immediately follows Moses' plea for justice and only justice isn't what we would immediately think should naturally follow a plea for justice and only justice. We would think and we would find it natural that after pleading for justice, Moses would go immediately to where we started in Deuteronomy 17, verse 8. Judges, just laws, obeying a verdict, But that's not where Moses goes immediately. In fact, look at what he does right after this. Deuteronomy 16, verse 20. Here's the key verse. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Immediately right after it, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And then afterwards he tells you this is what you should do if a man in your town causes you to not worship God. And then in verse 8, now he gets to the judges. Immediately after pleading with his people for, for justice, Moses goes into a section on worship. Is this Moses just getting old? Maybe lose it. He's, we're, we're a decent amount into his sermon at this point. He kind of sounds like he's lost where he's going and he's going to pick up his train of thought later. No, it's because Moses knows that justice is a worship issue. That's not to say justice does not have social ramifications, but it is to say that it is primarily a spiritual issue. In fact, the Hebrew word for justice is often translated as righteousness. Even linguistically, it can't be separated from these spiritual realities. And the chief injustice, the injustice that Moses chooses to follow up the plea for justice and only justice is the injustice of false worship. Taking what is due to God and giving it to things which are not. And there's this terrible trend going on in places around the world that are suffering from long-term drought. And historically in these places, uh, how the people got water is the local people gathered together whatever resources they had and tools they had, and they would dig wells and get groundwater. But in this drought, those shallow wells have dried up. And so what's begun to happen is that wealthier individuals or bigger companies have come in and bought relatively small parcels of land But then what they do is they bring in high-end, deep drilling equipment, and they drill wells far deeper than any of the locals could dig, and they begin to suck water, which in and of itself isn't wrong. But what happens is, 
is that groundwater doesn't know the boundaries that lay on top of it. And so what they do is they just begin to suck all of the water from the surrounding area of land that's not theirs, water that belonged to whoever was there to get access to it, and they suck all of it up, and they sell it to the highest bidder. They take water which didn't rightfully belong to them, and they sell it as a false goods. This is what our false worship is. False worship steals from God. False worship is things, evil people, idols of this world, selling what they think they can steal from God. Contentment, satisfaction, wealth, riches. Now in this illustration, God is not a vulnerable villager with a lack of resources. But God is a righteous judge. Which is why in verses 2 through 7 that we're not going to look at in full, we see Moses saying that if there are people who come in and they lead God's people to worship other gods or moons or stars or culture, put that person to death because they have robbed me of worship. Brothers and sisters, we don't worship Asherah poles or altars and pillars of Baal. But in so many ways in our life, as soon as we begin to neglect that this God is our Lord and creator, we have begun to commit cosmic treason and injustice. We take things which belong to God and we steal them for ourselves. And the reason why we wrestle with injustice towards others is because we live our lives practicing injustice towards the God who made us. Hearts separated from God by their sin will always wrestle not only with personal injustice and indwelling sin, but we will also wrestle when it comes to fighting injustice because we all have different definitions. Which means even when we want to fight injustice, we fight others who have different definitions of justice. Which shows then that if we are to have hope, the key is to be reconciled back to God. To give back the stolen water and to drink from the well of grace. This is where Moses begins to go next. Because here we see that our hearts are naturally restless. We're naturally prone to injustice, stealing from God to satisfy ourselves. And what we need is some sort of ecosystem in place to help our hearts be bound up, to help our hearts stay true, to help us not be uh, unjust towards God or unjust to those around us. And this is the second point today, where Moses shows us the design of justice. God not only defines what justice is, but he actually designs a program where injustice will thrive, where, where not injustice will thrive, but injustice, the program will thrive. Okay, God doesn't cause thriving injustices. I didn't say that, okay? Um, and I watched... Two completely unconnected films, one on the injustices of ISIS, one on the injustices of the Mexican cartels. And what's interesting is that in each film, key locals made the exact same point. When it came to protecting the vulnerable, they said it wasn't going to be a rogue rocket strike or a military takeover. They each said those things have happened before and things only get worse. But what they say instead is they need a strong government of some sort put in place that seeks to protect the welfare and the voice of the people. And this is exactly what Moses is prescribing 
thousands and thousands of years before this in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 18. Moses already told Israel that if they want to live long in the land, justice isn't just a nice thing. Justice is an essential thing. And they must not only have justice, but pursue it, follow it, seek after it. In order to do that, they must remain unblinded. They must not subvert the cause of the righteous. And so what does God do? Knowing our hearts are broken, he puts in place three key officials who help justice thrive. He prescribes a king, a priest, and a prophet. And in this ecosystem, justice will be protected and injustice will be kept at the bay. God's people were to love God and love others. And in order to do this, they need the king whom God would choose, the priest whom God would choose, and the prophet whom God would choose. And this is what you see in the back half of chapter 17 and the, all of chapter 18. We see God's king. God's king would rule by a righteous law, just protection, and a pure and undivided heart. In fact, look at how Moses speaks of this king. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he, that's the king. What does it look like to have a king that God chooses? It looks like this. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Power, sex, wealth, That's the byline of any story of any elected official gone wrong in the history of humanity. And here Moses says, God's king will not be influenced by the power of war horses, the attractiveness of sex, or the allure of gold. Instead, God's king, the king whom God will choose, will be influenced by something else. He picks up in verse 18. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart might not be lifted above his brothers, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God's king would not be influenced by the desires of power, wealth, and sex. Instead, he would be influenced by the goodness of God's law, this very law that Moses is preaching to these people. He would have his own copy, and the priests would proofread it so that he didn't create a copy of the law that served him and not God. And he would read it, and it would guide his heart. And the result, you see the contrast there, is not that he would lord it over his people, but that actually in his keeping of the law, it would identify him with his people. That he would be united, though king of the people, he would be united to his people in submission to God's righteous law. That's the king. Wouldn't we love a king who serves us with such purity, who protects us with such power? 
And now Moses transitions to the priests. And we see the role of the priest defined in chapter 18, verse 5, where Moses says this, For the Lord your God has chosen him, that is the priest, out of all of your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord your God, him and his sons for all time. What are priests to do? We also saw this back in chapter 17. Priests are to stand and minister before the Lord. This idea of standing isn't something passive. It's actually something active, something like a soldier standing between a holy God and a broken people. What do the priests do? They help reconcile that difference. They help a broken people safely approach a God who is unbroken, pure, and just. They help them make sure that the standards of righteousness have been fulfilled so that they can go before God safely and worship him and rejoice in his salvation. But what's interesting here is as Moses is speaking of the priests, he's not warning about the potential injustice of the priests, which he does in both the king passage and the prophet passage. Instead, he's cautioning the people that they might be prone to treat the priests with injustice. Moses' concern is that they would treat the priests justly. God had instructed the people themselves to provide for these priests out of their own wealth and food. And to rob the priests of this would do two things. First, it would rob God of worship. If the priests aren't provided for, then the priests might not be able to do what God had appointed them to do. They might have to go do something else. And that was a hazard to everybody. To not have a priest to help you with your sacrifices, to not help you meet the righteous requirement of the law, would have an adverse effect on you. But then secondly, if the priests aren't provided for by the people, weak and vulnerable priests might shift their ministry a little bit and say, well, what is maybe a more lucrative means of ministry? If I change what I'm saying a little bit, if I change the requirements of the law, if I make it easier, more comfortable, more accessible, maybe people will then start paying me, feeding me, protecting me. But to stop this injustice, Moses reminds the people of their responsibility to care for the worship of the temple by providing for the priests. And he also reminds the priests of their divinely appointed role to minister the true worship of God. God calls men to minister in sincerity and the church to further the ministry with sacrifice. And then we get to the prophets. And Moses starts by highlighting the corrupt and unjust practices, practices that show complete disregard for human life in chapter 18, verses 13 through 14. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 9 because that's where it starts. That's a good place to go. Uh, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Remember, there's seven nations in the land they're going into. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And so here we see this laundry list of things which are not only gross and yucky and dirty and dangerous, but culminate with the sacrifice of one's own children. 
And what's at the heart of this? Why are people doing this? Why would our culture participate in some of the nastiness we see today? We'll look at verses 13 and 14. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. These people are participating in this tragic Ponzi pyramid scheme of sacrificing even their children. Why? Because they're listening to the talkers of their day. They are listening to the culture, to the trends, to the false gospels, and they are bathing it in what is good. They are deciding what is right. But look at the restorative power of God's prophet as we continue in verse 15. How will you know who to listen to? Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, so this is back when Moses got the Ten Commandments on the mountain, right? We saw fire and all of that. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, that's God saying to Moses, they're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. If God's people are to remain pure, uncorrupted, and clear-headed for justice, they must learn to hear God's voice clearly. In a world of competing voices, they must cling to the voice of God. And here in the same sermon, where Moses is constantly reminding God's people that he's going to die, Moses says, but God will not leave you. God will send you another prophet like me who will speak the words of truth and justice and keep you from all of these dangerous, dirty things. And this is the economy that protects God's people, that causes justice to flourish by prioritizing a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. This was the key. It's as simple as this. Have a king who wields his power for the benefit of the masses. Have a priest who brings people into the presence of God and a prophet who speaks clearly God's words to them. God's going to appoint them. You keep them. You listen. Everything will be great. Turns out it wasn't great. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, they had prophets, they had priests, they had kings, but it wasn't enough because the kings were influenced by the power of sin. The priests grew restless in their worship and the prophets began preaching to itchy ears. In fact, the story of Israel is anything but justice and only justice. Look at what a few hundred years later the prophet Micah will say. Micah 3, verses 9 through 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? 
No disaster shall come upon us. You see, the story of Israel, despite seeing God's design, is not a story of justice triumphing. But neither is our culture, is it? Isn't it far too common to see the newest news story coming out where a crusader gets unveiled as a creep or an activist gets unveiled as an embarrassment or a prophetic voice speaking passionately to his people gets revealed as just a paid actor of the very cause he's speaking out against? Then we look at the great men and women who have fought for justice. And yet we see as time goes... Justice doesn't say where it was set. Gets eroded, crumbles, becomes corrupted. Yet, despite all of this, our desire for justice remains unchanged. Israel was looking for justice. We are looking for justice today. And this is why Moses and the whole of God's word is going to a culture and a church which is looking and he's directing us where to look. Where do we look to find the justice that we desire? The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink recognized this wonderful tension, a tension that is at the heart of all of our world when he says this. He says, the world seeks God, and at the same time they flee him. They have no interest in the knowledge of his ways, and yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God, and yet at the same time repelled by him. You see, all of us want justice. All of us are looking for justice. But what Moses and the whole testimony of Scripture is showing is that true justice must be found in God's design in Jesus Christ. In order for us to see justice, in order for justice to break into this broken world, we must learn to see what Jesus has done. Because Moses, in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, knew that God was going to one day choose someone who would be unblinded and uncorrupted. Jesus was the king, the true king. And sure enough, when Jesus was tested in Matthew, the devil came and he tried to distract this king with power and with wealth. He said, Jesus, I will give you the world if you just leave your people to me. But Jesus, as our true king, refused to cut a check for himself in a detriment to his people. And what sustained him? God's law. Deuteronomy itself. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. More than just keeping the law in nearness and Bible memory, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He took the righteousness upon himself so that he would not only exalt himself over us and lord it over us, but that he in his infinite mercy as his king would actually give us his righteousness. What a king is this king? Jesus is the true priest who in a world where sacrifices were getting corners cut all the time, in a world where Faithful men and women went to the temple every day offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, not feeling any real relief from their sin. Jesus came as the true priest who not only accepted the sacrifice for sins that God demanded, but who became the sacrifice of sins that God demanded 
so that you might come through Jesus without fear of what you have to offer, but instead in celebration of what your priest has offered for you. And Jesus came as the true prophet who preached the message of repentance and grace, who expounded on the law of Moses with such clarity as this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Jesus was the ecosystem that finally brought justice to the world. He was the king who would protect it, the priest who would offer it, and the prophet to daily remind us of it. This sounds good, doesn't it? Let's be realistic. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we pray for, we remember the millions of infants slaughtered in wombs throughout our world yearly. We turn on the TV and we see stories of rampant injustice in our community and across the globe. What kind of justice does this God bring? And this is where we must not forget that justice, first and foremost, at its spring, is an issue of the heart. Jesus didn't come to redeem a culture. Jesus came to redeem people. He came to die, not for culture, because culture is not created by God. Culture was not made in the image of God. You were. And you in your current state are one condemned under this just, pure, holy law. You by nature, just as much as being made in the image of God has put justice in your DNA, just as being found in the sin of Adam puts injustice in your DNA. But look at how Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus brings justice. But how does he bring it and where do we see it? And this is where we see the final point today in closing. The demand of justice. Because God defines it, because God has designed it, God can also demand it. Isaiah 21 or Isaiah 1 verse 27-28 says this. Zion, that's representative for the people of God, shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Because God is the one who defines it, it is God who gets to tell us justly what happens with it. And here in Isaiah, we see two ends of all people. 
We see those who are redeemed by justice and righteousness through repentance, or we see those who are broken together in judgment. If you care at all anywhere about justice, justice demands that you come and be reconciled to Jesus Christ. Our fury, our right, our good, our God-given fury for injustice in this world is meant to provoke in us a greater understanding of the injustice our sin has towards the God who created us. And to reject this demand is to face just punishment. As we talked earlier in the opening illustration, no one's necessarily opposed to punishment so long as the punishment meets the crime. The question is, do you listen to God's prophet, his prophetic holy word, and understand that there is nothing more serious than the worship which you have robbed from God? And when you begin to feel the weight of that, the Bible tells you to look and see the grace of God that God made a way for justice that doesn't have to come by way of your judgment. Justice by righteousness. And God has to judge this way. If there is to be salvation, justice has to be kept. If God didn't keep justice, he would not be a good God. Go do something else, but don't follow a God who does not keep justice. If we are broken, if our sins wronged God, it cannot be swept under the rug. It cannot be buried in our list of deleted tweets. It must be dealt with because they did real harm. But in Jesus, our true prophet, priest, and king, his perfect righteousness is counted to us by grace through faith. And our imperfect, broken acts of injustice are counted to Jesus for him in full reality. It's hard for us to think this way. We think only in theory. But for each and every one of you who calls upon the name of Jesus, Jesus took individually the full weight of your punishment on the cross. Why? Because God is a just God. And he will punish wickedness and evil exactly because he is good. I can't do that for you. I can die for my sins. You can die for your sins. But Jesus, as God in the flesh, can die for the sins of those who repent in his name. And here's this wonderful truth which Paul gives us in Romans 3, beginning kind of mid-thought in verse 22, talking about Jesus who is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who, whom God put forward. So here's this legal term, propitiation, this paying of a debt, paying of punishment by his own blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Here, justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is Jesus, might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Justice and only justice can be the plea of people who are in Jesus. And nowhere else do you ever want to say those words. Your greatest problem is not the injustice in this world. Your greatest problem is the justice of God that stands against you. And to hear God here, to be truly concerned about justice means you need to stop your injustice. Non-Christians, atheists, Muslims, they can do wonderful things in this world fighting against the injustice which is outside, but without the help of Jesus, we can do nothing for the injustice in our hearts. But Jesus has done something for it. It's not a nice, neat social program. It's the costly blood of redemption. Only Jesus brings justice to those who need it. Only Jesus protects justice in the world which is to come. So here's what I want to do just in closing. I know it's kind of long right now. Titans game doesn't start till one, so I have time. Uh, But our world is talking about justice a lot. And our church is at times seemingly divided about justice. So what I want to do is I want to equip us to talk about justice as God talks about justice. Just really quickly, this isn't another sermon, don't panic. Three points that I want us to have which help us engage in a dialogue about justice with those who are around us as God would see fit. So here are three things we're going to see about justice. is that justice is not just a social issue, it's a spiritual one. Justice is not just a social issue, it's a spiritual one. Again, if everybody were committed to justice, we would still have the injustice of competing justices. We need justice to be defined. And the God who created us defined it as a spiritual issue. And the truth is, no other worldview has proven the benefit of justice like the Christian worldview. Because no worldview promises that all evil will be unabashedly punished for what it is at the day of judgment. But no other worldview has lovingly offered a king as a captive for your punishment. Justice starts with the spiritual reality of your sin and God's desire to reconcile all things through Jesus Christ. Secondly, justice is not just a political point, it's a biblical one. Justice is not just a political point, it's a biblical one. And I say this knowing, I feel it in my own heart, there are two ways that people can respond to justice. To the first crowd, there are those who prioritize social justice over the Bible, or even those who take the social social teachings of the Bible and they put those over and above the spiritual teachings of the Bible. That we can go, this is what's called the social gospel. It's actually the reason why our church lost its first building in 1968 that says that this book is really just about how we treat each other. 
And if we can get the social things right and fight for social justice, then the world will be fine. But that neglects the fact that this spiritual God who sent his son to die for our spiritual need was talking about justice long before you ever tweeted anything. Justice is God's justice. And it starts spiritually and it is emphasized biblically. The solution isn't to drive yourself away from God's word, to neglect the Old Testament, but it's actually to see the heart of God's word in Jesus Christ. The second group of people, which me being middle class and white, probably fall into more times than not, is I get a little awkward when people are throwing around terms of injustice. I don't know what to do. Like, I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't done anything, but I feel this, like, awkwardness when injustice is talked about. Like, I've just robbed a homeless man or something. And we we felt it, haven't we? And sometimes we say, we chalk up every cry for justice as this social gospel. Man, Jesus is here for the spiritual things. Don't need any of that. But the Bible speaks. God cares. The New Testament prescribes that God's people care about injustice. That we, out of the storehouses of mercy that God has given us, we defend the widow, the orphan, and, the, and, and those who are vulnerable. The gospel, and the gospel alone makes justice comfortable because it defines justice for us. There is safety in God's justice. We need to realize on both sides of the debate that justice is a biblical category and it's the very category which saves you in Jesus Christ by his radical justice. And lastly, because of that, justice is not the work of the church. It is the witness of the church. Justice is not the work of the church, it's the witness of the church. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, first I want to point out this tension that Moses himself gave us last week. Uh, Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says this, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. Now look, a couple verses later, same chapter, same sermon, Moses says this in verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Which is it, crazy preacher Moses? (laughs) Are there going to be poor? Or will there be no poor? And Moses says, yes. Ideally, in God's wonderful world, his redemption is so strong that we give out of excess and everyone is cared for. But in this world, we do not have God's ideal. Sin has poisoned us. Sin has corrupted us. And we'll never be rid of it by human efforts. What's the implication of this? The implication is that the work of the church is not to transform culture through social justice or benevolence. We cannot do that. Only Jesus can do that. The work of the church is to make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded us. This means... The priority of the church isn't cultural change, it's spiritual change. But the assumption is that when people are changed by this wonderful, just gospel, as we've been seeing all through Deuteronomy, it changes the details of our life. It changes how we act. And when people are saved by Jesus, culture is changed because culture is nothing more than the shared beliefs of people in practice. Which means, starting for you, 
The culture of your life should increasingly reflect the justice of God in your home, in your marriages, in your workplace, in your spending, in your city. And we are doing this not because we expect to bring God's kingdom here. That would be a pretty not great kingdom. We need a better kingdom. But what it means is that when we pursue justice in our home and in our city, we are doing this as a witness to the ultimate act of mercy. In other words, it comes under our discipleship and our evangelism so that in our efforts, we could say one day in God's place, this will be what life is like always. This is the promise that God has given to us, that right now he can restore peace in your heart. That prophet, priest, and king comes to the chaos of your heart and says, this is what I've done for you. This is what you needed. This is your salvation. But then even better, he promises that one day he's going to take us to a place far better than a physical land where we'd be ruled by God's king in God's place as God's people and in small ways the witness of our efforts for justice opened the window for that wind of grace to pass through our world. But the truth is God cares about justice. And only when we understand the gospel can we go to our world, can we go to our city, can we go to our hearts aching for justice and say justice and only justice we will follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the application of this. The application of this truth which can only be done through your Holy Spirit. The application of this truth which doesn't immediately manifest itself in any good done on the outside of us, but instead by reconciling our hearts with where we stand in regards to God's justice. And Lord, I pray that today there are those who realize that despite how much they talk long and plead for justice, that their hearts are trapped by the injustice of sin and that you have come to save them. And Lord, I pray that collectively as we see the well of true justice in Jesus Christ, that in hundreds of ways, in hundreds of places, we can say to our world, this is what life is like in God's kingdom. This is what the gospel feels like, if only in part, come to this king who leads Come to this priest who cares and come to this prophet who protects. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.